A couple of years ago, the Iranian government proposed a new law that could be straight from the pages of a dystopian fiction. Faced with an aging population, the government planned to ban voluntary sterilization, believed to be the second most popular form of contraception in Iran. Women would be little more than baby-making machines. They obviously wouldn't have a say in this. It was yet another attempt by the government to control women's bodies. An art student, Otana, drew a picture to express her frustration. For that, she entered a nightmare that she's still living. Today, on In Their Own Words, we're going to give you a glimpse into a world that's hidden until you get on the wrong side of the law in the Islamic Republic of Iran. The art student's name is Otana Faradoni. Her words are voiced in English by the actress Nazanin Bonyadi. Here's Otana's story. My name is Otana Faradoni. I'm 30 years old. What else can I say? Well, I was an art student, but unfortunately I was expelled from art school because of a cartoon I drew. I was raised in a well-off family and studied painting at university in the southernmost part of Tehran. I learnt how an artist can convey meaning through images and shapes. I also realised for the first time that there are people living in poverty. After that, my paintings began to focus on social issues and portraying injustice. My art was mostly social commentary. Then, Iran's leader declared that voluntary sterilization would be banned because the country's population is aging. Anyone who broke this new law would face two to five years in prison. When the parliament sought to adopt this bill, I felt that an increase in population would lead to an increase in crime, violence and other problems. I also felt that it was a kind of invasion of privacy. So in response, I drew a cartoon of the members of parliament voting to pass the bill into law. But I drew them as monkeys, because monkeys are less evolved than people and less intelligent too. Before I posted the cartoon on my Facebook, I was aware that I could go to prison for it. I didn't tell anyone in my family what I was about to do. When I posted it, lots of people told me to remove it from my page, but I didn't. Some people were encouraging, but most were frightened and worried, and they kept getting in touch to see if anything had happened to me. But nothing did at the time. I was mostly happy about it. I was also a bit worried. But then time passed and nothing special happened. I held an exhibition of my drawings. It showcased my political works and lots of political activists and people from religious minorities came. It was for this that I was arrested some time later. My sister was home alone when she answered the door to them. They pushed her aside and entered our house. When my parents and I returned, there were about 13 or 14 people waiting for us. They had emptied all the drawers, cupboards and wardrobes. They had even tipped out the rubbish bins. 
None of us were allowed to stand up. We had to remain seated together. My bedroom floor was covered with my books, clothes, sketches and drawings, and they were methodically going through everything. They talked to my family and said, your daughter will be back home by midnight. But I told my parents not to believe them and said, I won't be back for some time. I was blindfolded, handcuffed and put in a car along with lots of my possessions, books, sketches, my laptop. Up to that point, they'd been quite polite and well-mannered in front of my family. They'd advised them not to speak to the media about my arrest, saying that doing so would only delay my return to much later that same night. But as we drove away, their tone changed immediately. They started swearing at me and threatening me as I sat there blindfolded. When we got to Evin prison, I was immediately put in solitary confinement. My cell was as deep as a grave, with very tall walls. It had no window and no toilet. It was only about three feet wide and five feet long. So as I leant against the wall, my feet could stretch out and touch the wall opposite me. It was infested with insects, and their stings irritated my skin. The cell was so dark that my eyesight deteriorated and got very weak. There wasn't a toilet in there, so prisoners would slip paper under the cell door to let the guards know we needed to go. Sometimes it would take hours for a guard to come. It absolutely felt like I was in a grave. I was interrogated for six weeks and spent the first 15 days in solitary confinement. They would blindfold me every single time I left the solitary confinement cell, and I'd remain blindfolded until they put me back in there. I would constantly tell myself, don't be afraid. On the first day, I was interrogated for six hours. At first, I said I would only talk in the presence of my lawyer. Their response was that I'd been watching too many movies. I didn't have the right to a lawyer. The first interrogation document they put in front of me was my cartoon. They asked, what were you hoping to achieve when you published this cartoon? I was always blindfolded during the interrogations and was sat very close to the wall, facing it with my back to the room. My interrogators would stand behind me, asking questions. They'd question me about my beliefs. At the same time, they tried to create divisions between me and my family. Like, why wasn't my sister politically active, but I was. They'd say my sister told them that she was opposed to my beliefs. They even showed me a letter from her saying, Artana, you got us into trouble. You're not a good girl. I said it was all a lie and tore up the letter. I would answer their questions and sometimes we'd argue. I told them that they were fascists, that their days were numbered, and that the stench of financial and moral corruption had filled the entire land. 
this comment resulted in a new charge, insulting the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. They asked questions about my Facebook page, about my relationships, about my friends. They wanted to know what the meaning of my drawings were and about the exhibition I held. They'd ask me about the meetings with the families of political prisoners and about the Child Labour Association where I was an active member. I told the truth about everything. I was under pressure, but everything I said was true. I was charged with propaganda against the system, insulting members of parliament as well as acting against national security. After being in solitary confinement, I was moved to a cell with a cellmate. We would talk about things we'd done and about our beliefs. The guards would bring us milk and paper cups, which I would save to draw on. I didn't have anything else. I'd gather flower petals and twigs in the prison yard and crush the petals into a paste to use as paint. One of the drawings was of me at the moment of my arrest. I was sat in the car, blindfolded, about to be taken away. Some of the pictures were simply of my prison number, 93033. When the guards found one of my drawings in my cell, they stopped bringing me paper cups. One day I was in the toilet and I saw a paper cup. I'd been told that the CCTV cameras in there didn't work, so I took the cup, hid it under my clothes, and went back to my cell. As soon as I was back in the cell, one of the female guards stormed in, quickly followed by another. She ordered me to take off my clothes. When I asked why, they swore at me and told me to strip immediately. I refused. Then they both attacked me. They ripped my clothes off by force, tearing them. I began to scream, telling them that what they were doing was wrong and to let go of me. One of them grabbed my arms and thrust me against the wall, pinning me there as the other woman searched me. They pushed me against the wall with such force that it bruised my right arm. I had lots of bruises and scars all over my chest and lower body, where they had forced their hands into my underwear. Some of my drawings were hidden under the carpet. When they found them, they began to insult me. They asked me where I'd found the paint. No matter what I told them, they said I was lying. They asked the interrogators to make me tell them where I got it from. The interrogators didn't believe that I'd made the pictures with flower petals. They put a piece of paper and some petals in front of me and told me to draw something. Since I didn't have anything else... I used my fingernails to press the petals into the paper to make a line. I was released on bail two weeks later, on the 2nd of November, 2014. I was determined to make a video about what they'd done to me and publish it on YouTube. I knew that when an issue's in the media, the government steps back because of the reaction from the international community, so I published it in the hope that this would never happen to anyone else. But my family and friends were against it. I uploaded it to YouTube on the 29th of December, 2014. One week after releasing the video, I was summoned to the court of law, but there was no trial whatsoever. They just sent me straight to Karachak prison. Once again, they blindfolded me and put me in a car. When I got to the prison, they made me remove all my clothes 
and told me to crouch down and stand up ten times in a row so they could ensure that I wasn't hiding anything in my body. It was humiliating. Garachak prison doesn't have any political prisoners. It is for people who have committed robbery, drug trafficking, rape and murder. The conditions there were awful. It is a small prison divided into seven sections and has 2,000 female prisoners. Since it's so crowded, some prisoners have to sleep on the floor even though the bunk beds have three berths. In one section, there were four showers for 189 prisoners and only one hour of hot water per day. Garachak only has salt water, which causes skin problems and other hygiene issues and means the tap water is undrinkable. There were inadequate food and medical facilities and lots of the prisoners had diseases like hepatitis and HIV. Many prisoners had acute mental disorders and should really have been transferred to psychiatric hospitals. There were incidents of rape and murder in the prison. Most of the food was watery and there were usually small stones in it. There were so many lice in there. If anyone complained of food or hygiene problems, they were threatened with solitary confinement. There was a prisoner in solitary who everybody was afraid of. She had once raped a girl with a mop handle. She was always in solitary confinement and so nobody ever complained of anything out of fear that they might be transferred to her cell. Her crime was related to drugs, but she had committed murder in jail and was sentenced to death. There were fights in the jail that were sometimes so brutal that people were killed, but the security guards didn't intervene because they were too scared. There was a woman in jail who propositioned me for sex, but when I rejected her, she threatened to rape me. Every time she saw me on my own, she would threaten and intimidate me. Lots of rapes would occur in the toilets and bathrooms, so it was a dangerous place. Whenever I had to go, two prisoners would accompany me to prevent her from attacking me. They were very kind and sympathetic. According to the law, I should have been sent to Evin prison, which houses political prisoners, but the judge illegally sent me to Karachak. So I decided to go on hunger strike to be transferred to Evin. My hunger strike started on the 9th of February 2015. It lasted for 22 days. I only had 10 mouthfuls of water in the first 20 days. No food at all. At around 15 days, I suddenly had heart palpitations and vomited. I threw up water and passed out. The authorities didn't care about me, but another inmate would put her hand over my mouth to check if I was still breathing. After the heart palpitations, they took me to the prison health centre, but as it didn't have any facilities, I was transferred to hospital. A nurse secretly called my family and told them where I'd been transferred, but my family weren't permitted to visit me. Even in hospital, I was handcuffed and shackled to the bed. I felt extreme hunger during the first 10 days. 
After 10 days, I didn't feel hunger anymore. And from the 17th day onwards, I would feel sick when I smelt anything. Food, or even the body odor of the nurses. On the 20th day of the hunger strike, my body would no longer accept water, and I'd just vomit it back up. In the last two days without water and food, I didn't even have the strength to sit up in bed. My head, neck and body felt heavy, and I couldn't hold them up. I no longer needed to pass urine, and my feet felt like they were paralysed. My eyesight was failing, and so was my hearing. I couldn't recognise voices or speech. My arms and legs were cut and bruised where the handcuffs and shackles were fastened. When a doctor came into the room, she yelled and told them to find the judge immediately. The doctor said, find him so I can speak to him on the phone. She is about to slip into a coma, and told them to loosen my shackles at least. I passed out. When I woke up, I saw I'd been put on an intravenous drip. I was very weak, but I managed to pull the needle out as the doctor spoke with the judge. She told him that he would be responsible for whatever happened to me. The judge immediately prepared a letter ordering me to be transferred back to solitary confinement in Section 2A of Evin Prison. Judge Salavati told my family to come and visit me in the hope that I'd give up on my hunger strike for their sake. When my family came, I just asked them to forgive me if my actions were hurting them. I didn't want to stop my hunger strike, even though my family begged me to. I knew that if I gave in, they would send me back to Karachak prison. On the 3rd of March 2015, they brought me the letter confirming my transfer to Evin prison. Once I saw it in person, I stopped my strike. I stayed in hospital to regain my strength and was only physically able to eat soup. I was still in handcuffs, so eating was very difficult as the food would spill from the spoon. On the 8th of March, when they wanted to transfer me to solitary confinement in Evan Prison, one of the female officers came and forced me into the hospital's toilet. She told me to take off all my clothes so she could search me. But I didn't even have the strength to walk at the time and was using a wheelchair. This woman forced me to strip naked and ordered me to do 10 squats for a body search. But because my legs were so weak, I just fell to the ground in the toilet. I was sent to solitary confinement and was there for three months until my trial. When I left the hospital, I needed to drink lots of water, but unfortunately, my cell didn't have a toilet. I had to urinate on a napkin for 26 days. My cell always stank of urine. I kept complaining and threatening to make all this public, so eventually they moved me to a cell that had a toilet. But even then, I suffered from nausea, dizziness and headaches because of the sewage in that cell. After the hunger strike, I should have been on a purely liquid diet, but the prison diet was solid and hard, which caused anal fissures and bleeding. I bled for three months every time I had a bowel movement and would scream out in pain in the cell. 
The guard would come and warn me to keep quiet, but I couldn't stop screaming because of how painful it was. After protesting and threatening to make my treatment public, I was transferred to a hospital run by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, but they didn't tell my family. My trial started on the 19th of May, 2015. It was a closed court hearing. My charges included insulting President Rouhani, insulting members of parliament, actions against national security, propaganda against the system, and insulting the Revolutionary Guard officers during interrogation. My family were only allowed in court for the sentencing. When the judge told them the guilty verdict, my mother couldn't stand on her feet, and my father was visibly shocked. On the 12th of June 2015, I was sentenced to 12 years and 9 months in prison. I immediately looked at my parents. They're getting on in age and I was thinking, will they still be alive when I'm released? It dawned on me that I would be in prison until I'm 42 years old. The judge said to me, are you happy now that you're making your family suffer like this? I replied, is this my fault or is it yours? My lawyer told me to keep quiet. Then they took me back to Evin Prison, where I was transferred out of solitary confinement and back into the women's section with the other political prisoners. There are about 25 of us on that wing. The prison has lots of problems. The guards and wardens could be verbally abusive. Prisoners who fell ill were rarely treated at the health centre, which itself had very few facilities. At one point, we gathered to protest about not having access to a telephone. But the head of the prison came and threatened to transfer the protesters to Karachak prison. After that, everyone had to keep silent. But we all tried to make the conditions better for ourselves. For instance, I drew pictures, often portraits of other prisoners. Others would weave clothes or sew. We were allowed outside in the prison yard from eight in the morning to five in the afternoon. So in some respects, it was better than Karachak. Much better, in fact. At first, I thought about what I could do during all these years in prison. I planned to keep on drawing and hold an exhibition of my work after my release. But then I'd start thinking about my parents and what they were doing. I didn't regret what I'd done, but I really wanted my family to accept what had happened and understand why it happened so they'd be able to support me. That was the most important thing to me, along with the fact that I had only ever told the truth. So I didn't regret anything. For the first four months, I wasn't allowed to see my father and sister. They weren't granted visitation rights. My mother was the only one allowed to visit me, and she would cry all the time. We had visits every Sunday, a non-contact visit, which means I'd be behind a glass screen and we had one contact visitation every month. All visits lasted 20 minutes. My family kept telling me to apologise in the hope that my sentence would be reduced. Saying no didn't work, so I just changed the subject. At the end of the visit, a curtain would drop down. As it lowered, I'd pull a face so they'd laugh at the last minute. It was grimly funny. 
In the beginning, they did their best to make me change my mind. But once I started to lose my temper with them, they stopped trying. One day, my lawyer came to Evan to get me to sign some documents related to my appeal. As a sign of respect, I greeted him by shaking his hand. The judicial deputy head of Evan Prison saw me shake hands with him and asked about the nature of our relationship. I said, we don't have one. They immediately took me to the prison court. The prosecutor insulted me a lot and asked me to defend myself. He said if I were a good girl, I would not shake hands with a man. I said I would only respond to him in the presence of my lawyer. The judge laughed and said they'd sent my lawyer to Rajo Shah prison. I thought they were lying. I didn't believe they would send him to jail for such a trivial matter. But then they told me to defend myself against the accusation of an illicit sexual relationship, and I realized they were actually accusing me of that. A sexual relationship short of adultery. I don't know what short of means. That was how it was worded. When they took me back to the women's section, my fellow prisoners laughed and told me not to worry. The authorities were bluffing. But when my dad came to visit, he told me it was serious and that my lawyer was in jail. He'd been arrested and accused of having a sexual relationship with me. The news had been published on the internet. My dad was worried because he said people didn't believe the accusations were made simply because of handshaking. The deputy head of Evan Prison summoned me and told me he thought I should be sent back to Karachak Prison for this new charge, as it wasn't political. I had an argument with him. I said the charge was political, and that's why I was there. These are your charges, I said. He just insulted me more. When I told my family about this, they got very scared. So they did some media interviews publicizing the new charges and the threat to send me back to Karachak prison. This made the authorities even angrier. So they administered a pregnancy test and a virginity test on me, which was invasive and degrading. It was a way of putting pressure on me. It's a tactic they use sometimes against political prisoners, particularly young, unmarried women. I told my family about these tests during a visit. They got very angry and at first agreed to speak out again to the press. But the next time they came, they changed their minds. They wouldn't talk about the pregnancy and virginity tests. They argued that people wouldn't believe that the authorities had done the tests on me just for shaking hands with my lawyer. Publicly claiming they had would only benefit the government. But I did manage to get the news out. When it was released, my family pressured my lawyer into denying that it was true. The judicial deputy head of Evan Prison summoned me again. He said he was making phone calls to have me transferred to Karchak Prison. After I left his office, I went back to the women's section. I began a three-day dry hunger strike without having any food or water. I demanded that the accusation of a sexual relationship must be dropped. I said it is unfair to send me to Karachak prison because of this accusation. It was unfair to give me a pregnancy test 
or a virginity test. This was only a short time after the previous hunger strike. I had become very weak. The prison officials claimed they couldn't do anything about the charges, as the case hadn't been to court yet. I said I didn't want to go back to Garachak prison, and they were smearing my dignity. I said I would rather die than to lose my reputation in this way. Wet hunger strikes take much longer to starve you. I wanted to make things happen sooner if they were going to happen. My fellow prisoners would feel more upset by watching me suffer for longer. I didn't want them to feel bad by lengthening my strike, because the conditions there were already so difficult. When they transferred me to the health center of Evan Prison, the judicial deputy head of the prison came and showed me my file. He said that he'd removed the accusation. I asked how I could be sure he wasn't lying. He said, you can be sure of it, but bear in mind this won't be in your interests. It will be damaging to you. They immediately arranged a trial for me. I didn't have any representation, as my lawyer was now also on trial himself. Eventually, his lawyer ended up representing me too, and we were both exonerated. A few days after I stopped my hunger strike, my toenails broke and partially fell off. The prison doctors said that this was due to the sudden shock that my body had experienced. It was just like the final days of my previous strike. As it was a dry hunger strike, my body had become much weaker. After a while, all my toenails recovered except for my big toenail. It was infected. One of the doctors said that it needed to be removed, but the others argued that if they removed it, people outside would think that it had been pulled out as a result of torture. I promised I wouldn't leak the news to the media, but they did nothing except put me on strong antibiotics for the next five months. I had an infection and pain for a long time. When I was released from prison, a doctor finally removed my toenail. He said that I shouldn't have been on antibiotics for that long. He was shocked to learn why they hadn't removed it in prison. The infection had spread all over my foot. It struck me that they'd put my life in danger just to avoid a piece of news from leaking out, which shows how costly it is for the government if an issue leaks into the news. We all realized that in prison. All of us prisoners were friends to one another. We were like family. I think my own family had a much harder time than I did. There were people who had been in prison for eight or nine years, but they were still happy, strong and full of hope. I didn't cry in prison. It may sound strange, but I felt so hopeful there. I was so inspired by the women who had been there every single day for years on end, but were still so strong and positive. Many of them were mothers who'd never seen their children go to school. When I compared myself to them, I felt stronger. I owe my hope to them. It was because of them that I didn't stop my hunger strike. There were inmates who would talk about being released. They were waiting for freedom. I could see how the waiting was making prison harder for them. So I decided to serve out my sentence and never think about being released. Waiting makes time pass more slowly. 
I just tried to accept being in prison for 12 years. I really didn't expect to be released from jail. But one day during a visit, my sister told me that my sentence had been shortened after an appeal hearing. It had been reduced to 18 months, and then a suspended period of three years for insulting Iran's leader. At first I couldn't accept it was true, but when friends inside told me their families had heard on the news that my sentence was now 18 months, I finally believed it. But I wasn't happy at all. I couldn't bear the thought of leaving prison while my friends were still there. But they all told me I was going to be free that week and that I should pack my things. I was released on the 3rd of May, 2016. On the day of my release, I woke up early while everyone else was still sleeping and went to the window next to my bed. I looked out at the mountains and told myself that this is the last time I'll see this view. My closest friends in prison invited me to lunch that day. As we ate, I tried to commit every one of their faces to memory. After eating, they told me to go down with my belongings. Everyone gathered around me, one by one, and started to sing the old anthem, O Iran, the land of gems abound. I kissed their foreheads one by one. It was so painful to leave them. My family and lots of my friends came to Evin for my release, so there was a big crowd outside the prison. They warned my family that I wouldn't be released until the crowd was much smaller, even if they had to wait all night. So I was released much later than I should have been. When I got home, I felt like I was in an unfamiliar place. I was wondering, will I be able to get back to my normal life? And given that I have three years of a suspended sentence to serve, I constantly have this feeling that I may go back to prison again. I feel like many years of my life are gone. I feel old. When I went back to the university... I realised they would no longer accept me there. I've been deprived of many things. I constantly feel like I don't have much time left. But I continue to make art, and I plan on holding an exhibition. I sometimes post critical cartoons on my Facebook page, even though I know doing so may have severe consequences. So many things have changed for me. None of the gallery owners will let me hold an exhibition in their galleries. They're too scared. But I don't intend to stop protesting or making political art. My family is always checking up on me to see what drawings and cartoons I'm producing. As I don't want to leave Iran, they get worried about me and are always telling me they don't have the strength to support me anymore. But art is like a part of me, and I can't give up on political or protest art. I feel old and I feel depressed partly due to the nightmares I'm suffering from. Most of them are about getting stuck in a bathroom or toilet. They always occur in the same toilet. I'm trapped in a grave that's actually a toilet, or I get stuck in a bathroom with no door. Sometimes, someone suddenly attacks the bathroom I'm in, or I'm trapped in a toilet with really high walls that are closing in on me, as if I'm about to be crushed between them. I didn't have these dreams when I was in prison. I had better sleep in prison. But still, 
I won't stop what I'm doing at all. Even though I may get sent back to prison. Much of what I've said today could get me in trouble, I think. But I decided to speak out because over time I've learned that when the media reports on an issue, others in the same situation won't be treated as badly. I'm not very hopeful that my generation will live to see a democratic Iran. And I know I may go back to prison. But I do hope that future generations will see a democratic country. It's hope for the future that keeps us going. I'd like to thank the international human rights community and Amnesty International. I owe my release to all those working for human rights and the National Cartoonist Society in the US for publicising the news in the media. I'm indebted to all of them. I owe all my hope to the women I met in prison who are resisting despite suffering so much. I learned so much from them. I might have given in if not for them. That was Nazanin Bonyadi reading the words of Otana Faradani. It's one year since Otana walked out of prison. An amazing day. But she could be sent back to prison at any time in the next two years. Her nightmare continues. You're listening to In Their Own Words, a podcast from Amnesty International. Sadly, this is our last episode for this series, but please subscribe on iTunes or check out our feed on your podcast provider to hear all of our episodes from the last couple of series. And do rate us and leave a review. We'd love to hear what you've made of this series. I'm Anna Bracciarelli. The series is produced by Sam Lawler. Thanks for listening.